Like I said before, uh, if you are a note taker uh, and you uh, are sometimes wondering where to start or just like to have writing down, uh, I do always make a kid's bulletin, uh, but adults can steal them as well. I always print more than enough. Uh, and the nice thing about being a kid's bulletin is you get to color in stuff and do mazes and stuff like that. So there's extra activities that are... <laughs> <laughs> I, I go back and forth. Sometimes it's crossword. Uh, I haven't done one of those connect the dot things in a while. Maybe I'll do one of those soon. <laughs> and I always put in a comic. Generally, I try to change it because it's for the kids as well. But if you're ever interested and you like taking notes, I do make sure that there's a bunch of extras there. And if I see that they start disappearing all the time, I will make more just to help you. Um, as I know we all learn slightly differently. Now, this week, we are starting to look at the shortest uh, and uh, chapter that is in the entire book of Hebrews, which is chapter 8. It's also a pivotal chapter in that right now what's going to happen is our, end, our author is going to transition uh, from uh, looking at what he's been looking at to start looking at the old covenants um, and the things that God has set up and helping us to look forward to Jesus' arrival, how Jesus' actions are foretold by even the temple itself. And so he's going to start explaining some things today. Now, part of the foretelling is going to be even more so described when we finally get to chapter 9. Um, now, last time we were together, we looked at chapter 7 as we're working our way through the book of Hebrews right now. And our author stated that they wanted to dive deeper. And boy, did they ever. They wanted to leave behind basic doctrines and go into these deeper points in relationships with God. And sometimes it can feel a little bit over your head. Uh, the book of Hebrews, I'm not going to lie, if you're, if you're coming in for the one sermon, you're like, this is what this church does. Not always, okay? So I'm warning you. Yeah, I'm looking right. <laughs> the one new face for those who already... It's not always this deep, I promise. Just right now, he said he wanted to go deeper, and so for the next two or three chapters, he's a little bit deeper. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to give you as many visuals as possible, but I'm going to try to give you the information. I'm even going to give you a reason why we're going over the information and how it affects you and why does he even say it? Like, what does it do for us? So he, he gives us this idea last time in chapter 7 of this guy named Melchizedek. And he introduces him uh, to us as this priest and king. Uh, he's not only difficult for us to understand, not a lot of people talk about him or even look him up, he's also hard to spell. And ultimately, we're shown that this special priesthood is held also by Jesus as king and priest. And so if I was going to sum up a little bit of last time together, through Melchizedek and his actions, our author is showing us our true need for a perfect priest. So remember, okay, so we got to go all the way back to the priesthood. And this is, he talks a lot about in this in the Hebrews, that the priests also had sin in their lives that had to be dealt with if they too were going to be able to have an open relationship. So the priests of the temple, they were human, just like you and I. They had sin that had to be dealt with. And he's actually going to expand on this today in chapter 8. And one of the things that we didn't talk about last time is that our author used this man, Melchizedek, who kind of seems to come out of nowhere and then disappear just as quickly um, to bless Abraham during a time when he needed encouragement and he needed a reminder of where to put his focus. Because of our purpose last week, we really didn't go into detail on the circumstances that were surrounding Melchizedek. And I, I wanted to touch on this before we got into our sermon today and kind of give you a little sermonette before the sermon, within the sermon. Um, you see, the king of Sodom, okay, remember I had talked about there was this huge battle. 
And so uh, the kings of the west kind of destroyed the kings of the east. And Lot was living in Sodom, and he got pulled away uh, as a kind of a war trophy. He was going to become a slave. Abraham said, ain't going to happen. Pulled out 300 different men that were trained under his house, which is nuts that he has an entire battalion of men working for him in his house. Tells you how powerful he was at the time. He goes and he rescues everybody, and he brings them all back. So he does a nighttime attack, gets everybody back. King of Sodom, who lost his people, is now saying to Abraham, hey, you can keep the spoils. I just want my people back. And that's actually a very gracious thing for him to say and not even to try to do. Well, this would have been a great honor for Abraham if he'd taken up on the offer, but also at the same time, in a way, he could end up in the king's debt because the king is just saying, you know, you can have this, so maybe you could give me a favor later down the road. So it's not a really great place for him to be. So in the middle of this, at this time, all of a sudden, he starts worshiping God with Melchizedek, and Abraham gives the, the king of Sodom everything back, uh, and he even says these words in Genesis fourteen twenty four. He says, I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap that nothing I will take, anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So he's faced with inheriting this massive amount of wealth, but it's from a really ungodly source. And God uses Melchizedek, all of a sudden he steps into history uh, to remind Abraham where his true sustainer and provider is and where it's coming from. So it's a really great lesson I think we can't overlook. When you're faced with a difficult decision, and we all have difficult decisions that we have to make in life, what do you do? Do you write out a pros and cons list? I'm, I'm typically that guy. I write out a pros and cons to kind of help me to think through. Do you, do you ask a reliable friend an opinion? We always go to someone that we trust and be like, hey, what's your opinion? Um, do you pray? Abraham took the time to worship God with Melchizedek. In fact, one of the more interesting things is exactly how they worshiped God together. So uh, let me ask you something, because you guys are a smart crowd. Uh, when we celebrate communion together, how do we celebrate it? What are the two elements? Does anybody know? Bread and the wine. Bread and the wine. Okay, there you go. And said it without even hesitation. We celebrate it by remembering Jesus' sacrifice on the cross by taking the bread, uh, which represents his broken body, and the juice, uh, which represents spilled blood on our behalf. Let me show you something really interesting here. So Genesis 14, 18, just a couple of verses before when he's, you know, taking this stuff and worshiping God. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God most high. Abraham and Melchizedek worshiped God together by sharing bread and wine together. Some commentators have even speculated that they were actually taking communion together, looking forward to Jesus' eventual sacrifice. Now, I'm not sure I would go that far, um, but it's intriguing to think about nonetheless. Regardless of how they worshiped God together, the point is that they decided to worship God. They, they stopped. They had a difficult decision to make, and they stopped and decided to worship God in the moment before making the difficult decision. So remember that next time you're faced with a big decision. Maybe you can turn on your favorite Christian song and, and sing it aloud. Maybe sing it in private if you can't sing very well like I can. Um, go to a quiet place and pray. Um, find a friend and talk to them. Read a chapter of the Bible. Whatever it is that you can get yourself into worshiping God, go and do that before you have to make a big decision. Help remind yourself of who God is, that he never changes, and that he loves you and he's there for you. And it'll completely affect the outcome of your decision.
So today we're going to begin chapter 8. Our sermon title is Shadows and Covenants. Shadows and Covenants. Now this one's going to be broken up into two points. I'm just going to say them. I'm not going to have them on the screen because I've got a bunch of other slides to help us process what can be a lot of information. First, he's going to talk about shadows of heavenly things, which he'll talk about in the actual text. And then he's going to talk about better covenants, which we'll have a little bit on the screen. So he spends the first part of this pretty short chapter looking at the priesthood and then the better covenant that Jesus has brought in the second half. So let's start at the beginning, a place of which I have been told is a very good place to start. If you have your Bibles open, we're going to be in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. The rest of them will be on the screen, but I always like to start you off in your Bible. Chapter 8, reading out of the New King James for myself as normal. It says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord has erected and not man. So he begins with now this is the main point. Almost as if he knows that there might have been some confusion in the last chapter. Like I said, last chapter was a bit of a difficult chapter. It's a deep chapter that not a lot of people cover. And so he's like, look, and just in case I've lost you at this point in my letter, this is the main point of what we're writing about. This is why we're writing this. So he states down, this is the point of what we're saying. But before we jump too far, I do want to point out again that the author refers to their selves as they have said, again, we, okay? So remember, there's a confusion as to who actually wrote this book. We really don't know. But in chapter 5, and again here in chapter 8, verse 1, it says we, like there's a multiple people actually writing this book. It lends to the theory that actually a group of guys got together and they wrote this book together towards the audience because they were kind of helping each other out. Um, so, but the main point, the author states that their main point is that they have a high priest who is at the right hand of God. So in verse two, he actually expands on the high priest's duties as he's sitting at God's right hand. Number one, he's a minister of the sanctuary uh, as he sits at God's right hand. And second, he's uh, part of the true tabernacle. He's a minister of the true tabernacle. We're told that there's a tabernacle that God has made in heaven and that it was not made with human hands. So he's telling us that right now, Jesus is performing priestly duties on our behalf that would be familiar to the people of uh, the author's day. They would have expected this. They would have understood this because they would have gone to the temple themselves. So Jesus is up in heaven performing duties for us that would be familiar to them. So he continues on in verse 3. He says these words, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that the one also have something to offer. So this is the information that we've actually already covered in this book. So this, for us, is kind of redundant. The high priest has given the job of offering gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the nation as a whole. So essentially, he's responsible for the sin sacrifices of the nation. And notice that it says, it's therefore necessary that this one, and the one is capitalized. He's actually directly referencing Jesus Christ when he says it this way. So if you were with us at any point in the past couple of weeks, you've probably, we've looked at the priesthood of Jesus and you've been following along and you're probably wondering, number one, if I need a sin sacrifice, okay, according to this law, if I need a sin sacrifice for my own sins, why does the priest also have to sacrifice for everybody as well? I mean, doesn't that feel a little bit redundant? If I've got to do it myself and the priest has to do it for the entire nation, like why this double thing? You, you ever wondered that? You ever thought that through? Maybe just me. And so what it sounds like is that it's redundant, but I want to put it into terms that I think we can relate to today, 
Okay, so in our nation and in our state, we have different laws. In our state, according to the laws, you gotta buckle up. You gotta put a seatbelt on when you're driving around. When I grew up, actually, in Vermont, the law was different. You only had to wear one until you were 18, and in New Hampshire, you didn't even have to wear one at all. But in this state, if you're in the car, you gotta have a seatbelt on. Now, if you're in a crash, as I've been in several, uh, I was talking about those with Ann this morning, um, but uh, if you're in a crash, the seatbelt only does you good if you've put it on, okay? So for the seatbelt to have an effect, you actually have to apply the law, okay? Now, once you've applied it, okay, so Jesus died for everyone so that everyone can get saved. However, there's a catch. You have to personally apply it, like the seatbelt, you have to personally apply it for it to have any effect on your life. So, have you ever heard someone say that we are all God's children? There are well-meaning people out there that are like, we're all God's children, honey. Unfortunately, as much as we'd love for this to be true, they're completely wrong. Yes, we are all made by God, but the biblical author John reminds us these words. He says, but as many as have received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name. The key word here is received. And this is the sure point that our author in Hebrews is trying to make. That by Jesus our sin is covered as he has performed his priestly duties on our behalf. However, we have to personally accept and apply that sacrifice of Jesus on our own lives if we're going to partake in the blessing that it can give. So the world has been given a ticket to heaven, but few have chosen to get on the train. So we're going to continue on in Hebrews and something that seems a little bit odd at first here. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Well, that's kind of weird. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. So wait, are you, is the author trying to tell us that Jesus doesn't qualify as a priest? Or, or what's happening here? Why, why would Jesus not be a priest if he was here on earth? I don't, I don't get that because he's performing priestly duties, right? Like, so what's the confusion about I want you to notice that he says, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. It actually tells us a little bit about the date of when this is written. He's saying this is happening actively. It means the temple is still standing. We know by history uh, that uh, the Roman emperor Titus came and he sacked Jerusalem for five days, destroyed the temple in 70 AD. We know now that this, this was written before 70 AD. So that kind of is one of those cementing points. You ever wonder how do we date letters? by information like this. This is the kind of stuff. So we know about when this was actually done. Now, the author's point is saying that Jesus couldn't be a priest if he were still on earth is because he couldn't be one, according to the Levitical law. That law perfectly points to Jesus and his ascension at the right hand of God. So it symbolizes the priest was crossing over into the veil in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. If Jesus didn't ascend, okay, and he was still on earth, then the entire system is broken. Because everything in that system points to him going up and sitting at the right hand of God. If he didn't do that, he's saying the whole system's broken. Nothing works because of what it foreshadowed had not come true, making it an imperfect system and Jesus an imperfect priest by logical progression. However, that's not the case. Jesus is in heaven and our author continues on with these words. He says, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. So 
Here the author is telling us what has been done on the earth with the temple, the way it looks, the way it's set up. And it's been done in such a way that it reflects a certain way in heaven, okay? So it's been done so that it reflects. It's a shadow or a copy or a pattern of what is actually happening in heaven. And what the Israelites are used to seeing on earth is a general form of what they can expect to see in heaven. So when we start understanding this, when we get to heaven, it's not as big a surprise. So it takes a little bit of learning. Everything in the temple process, everything, and I mean everything, pointed to Jesus. Everything. So it started out in the tabernacle, and then they built Solomon's temple. So you'll have Solomon's temple. Inside the outer courtyard, that's a cross section there, inside the outer courtyard at the right side of that picture there that you can see is a brazen altar where the sacrifices are made. Sin and its debt is settled there. But since we still sin... There's also a laver, a big wash basin, where the priests would actually be washing their hands afterwards from the cleansing of the sin. So those are things that talk about dealing with sin and cleaning from sin. They're actual visual representations. The inside of the temple itself is kept purposely simple, kind of like our relationship with Jesus. In the main area, what they call the holy area, there are three pieces of furniture, and only three pieces. They symbolize the three parts of the Godhead. There's a golden lampstand, a gold table of showbread and a golden altar where incense is offered. The lampstand is a type of Jesus Christ. It's the light of the world. The table of showbread symbolizes that he's the bread of life. He gives us sustenance. The golden altar, which the high priest offered prayer, spoke of Jesus as our great intercessor. We talk about him being our high priest. and He talks to God on our behalf. So, there was this day that they call the Day of Atonement, happened once a year, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. We talked about this recently. In that room, there are only two articles. It's the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the broken commandments. It also has a pot of manna, and it has Aaron's staff that budded, actually kind of had a, a bud that came out of it, even though it was a dead staff. So the Ten Commandments speak of the fact that Jesus is coming to fulfill the law. The bread of manna, again, talks about uh, Jesus being the bread of life, even today. And then Aaron's rod, which budded, even though it was dead, talks about the resurrection of Christ. On top of the ark, uh, when the priest goes in there, he would sprinkle blood, and it would cover the sins of the nation. So we spoke before how when Jesus died, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, which only the high priest could go into only on that one day of the year, it was separated, okay? It was ripped from the top to the bottom. It signifies that forever God has opened up the holy of holies in the presence of God to everybody, okay? So everybody now has access to him. All of this was a shadow of what now is. It all pointed to him, and it did so very perfectly. And this is why he wraps up this section when he says in verse 6 these words. He says, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So Jesus obtained or secured a much better ministry, not just for him, but for us as well. So he's our mediator. He's given us a better covenant that has been established on better promises, which actually brings us to our second major point today in this sermon. It's called better covenants. Since we've been in this letter, we've been talking a lot about a thing called covenants. Um, covenants are made throughout history between God and people. Uh, like I've said before, a covenant is a contract or an agreement between either a God and a people or a God and a people group. Um, in verse 7, our author says these words. 
For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So if the first one had been perfect, we wouldn't have needed another one. The Bible speaks of seven different covenants. However, he says if the first one had been perfect, then there wouldn't have been a need for a second one. So what covenant is he referring to if there's seven different covenants and what does it mean? So some of the covenants that God has made between himself and mankind have been unconditional. So when a covenant is unconditional, that means it all rests on God and his actions, which means he's putting it on himself to make sure everything's good. So he's saying, you know what, I will make sure this goes. Other ones are conditional. So they're based on what we do, what we say in our actions and reactions. So they're either based on what God's doing or on what we are doing. Now, that goes back and forth depending on which covenant it is. So the one that he's talking about is the Mosaic Covenant, the following of the law, because it's the only one that the nation was trying desperately to keep but utterly failing at. However, before we get to it and its eventual replacement, I want to show you the covenants so that you have a little bit of better understanding. Now, there are seven different covenants. There's the Adamic the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Palestinian, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New. Those are the covenants that we find in the Bible. Now, I'm about to give you a ton of information. Um, just, just a forewarn. I told you this one's a little bit deep, and I'm sorry. We got to go through a couple of deep days. We're going to get back to the later days, I promise. This is a lot of information. This is not meant to be some college-level class. I'm actually going to give you the Cliff's Notes version of all of these just to keep it as light as possible. If this is too much information for you to write down, we put a podcast out, re-listen to this one later. And I'm even going to give you a reason why we're going over this so you can, once I wake you back up at the end of this, I can give you a reason as to why we went through this, okay? So I don't want to uh, bore you too much, but like I said, you can study uh, up on them. So we got the, the first one is the Adamic covenant, the Ad, Ad, Adamic, yeah, Adamic. So that was between God and Adam. It was made up of two parts, before sin and after sin. The part that matters to us is the latter part, which includes the curses pronounced against mankind for the sin of Adam and Eve, as well as God's provision for that sin. So you remember, all of a sudden, after Adam has sinned, uh, we have, you know, the, the ground's going to be hard for Adam to till, and he's going to work uh, by the sweat of his brow the rest of his life. Ladies are going to have a pain in childbirth, and so on and so forth. That comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So second is the Noahic covenant, this Noahic covenant. It's an unconditional covenant between God and Noah, specifically Noah, and humanity in general. Now, Basically, the big part that, that's worth it to us is that after God flooded the world, he promised to never do it again, and the sign that he shows is a rainbow. See, we all know this covenant. You guys are familiar with that. That's uh, in uh, Genesis as well. So God made that covenant that he would never again flood the world. The next covenant that he makes is the Abrahamic one. It's found in Genesis chapters 12, 13, 17, and 22. So it's kind of peppered throughout. Uh, and this one, God promises different things to Abraham, uh, that his name is going to be great, that he'd have a bunch of physical descendants, that he would be the father of many nations. He also promises that Israel would possess a certain geographical location. Uh, he promises that everybody in the world would be blessed by Abraham and his seed through the Messiah uh, that would eventually come in his line. So after the Abrahamic comes the Palestinian covenant or the land covenant. 
It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 10. So it details the land that Abraham's descendants would own, basically where they would inherit uh, as a nation. Once they're restored to him, and they will fully own all of that land, and it would cause them to prosper. So the big one that we're most familiar with is the Mosaic Covenant. That's found mostly in Deuteronomy 11, and it's a conditional covenant that is bringing God's blessings uh, for obedience and his cursings for disobedience upon the nation of Israel. Now, part of this covenant is the Ten Commandments, which is found in Exodus chapter 20. The rest of the covenant comes in with the law, which has over 600 laws that they have to keep perfectly if they want to be able to earn their way to God. The books of Joshua... Judges, Ruth, Esther, Joshua through Esther, they detail how Israel either did really good at following them or really bad at failing at them. And it's more the latter than it is the first. The sixth covenant is going to be the Davidic covenant. Okay, that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. It builds on the Abrahamic covenant, and it specifically says not only will the Messiah come through Abraham's line, but it also comes specifically through David's line, and that a king will sit on David's throne forever throughout eternity. It's talking about Jesus. Um, the last covenant, the one that we are actually under, is what our author is about to reference in Hebrews. And it's actually known as the New Covenant. That's all it's called. It's originally found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Again, it's actually quoted, and we're actually going to look at it here in just a minute. It was first made with the nation of Israel and then the world. So the covenant promises to forgive sin and that there will be a universal knowledge of Jesus. And we're actually now underneath this covenant. Both Jews and Gentiles, none of us here are Jewish directly, we can come to God and we can become a part of his family. We can be free of the penalty of the law. Everyone has been given an opportunity to receive the free gift of salvation. Okay. So, if you're still with me and you're still awake, that was a lot of information all at once. I, I understood that. I knew that going in. Like I said, you can listen to that later if you miss something and you want to go back. The question is, why? Why go through all of this? Like, what does this have on my life right now? Why even talk about this? Well, number one, as I say often, God always keeps his promises. So, when we look at all these covenants, we can see God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. That's a really good thing. We can verify the reliability of God's word by looking back. So that's a good way to do that. Also, when you're in a long-term relationship with somebody, how much do you want to know about their past? Actually, it was funny. The deacons and I were actually talking about this very story this morning. It was actually already pre-written in my stuff. Um, I mean, if you if you're getting together and you're, you're planning on marrying somebody, some of us want to be married. We're in a relationship. Do you want to know if they're a bank robber? I mean, that would probably be really important, right? Do you want to know if they've served time? Or maybe more importantly, do you know if they've still got the money? You know, that might help. <laughs> we want to know about the past of somebody as we're getting into a relationship so we can see what they've done, okay? We talk about doing background checks for, for the people that serve in our nursery and areas. And we're even talking about getting all of our officers in our church maybe going to that route for background checks. Why? Because the more we know about your past, we can see what's happening in the future. And the more we know about God's past, the more we can trust him as we walk forward towards the future. So that's why we start looking at that. The question is, do you want to know more about your relationship with Jesus? I think most of us would say, yeah, I'd love to know more about Jesus. Well, knowing more about God's past helps us understand his character and what we can expect from him. 
So in verses 7 to 12 in Hebrews, our author quotes Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He shows directly how to show that the new covenant has officially taken place. So he's saying at this time, remember, he's actually living in a time of transition of going from the Mosaic to the new covenant. We're in the new covenant, but he was in the transition. So in the middle of that quote, I'm not going to read you the whole thing. I just read you most of it. I'll read you just part of it. And 8.10, chapter 8, verse 10, he's quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He says, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The problem with the Mosaic covenant is that it was completely on the people. We as a people had to do absolutely everything to get to God. They had overextended themselves thinking that they could somehow act good enough that they could make it to heaven on their own merits. And you want to know what? Not a single person, no one ever was saved by keeping the law. We all failed. In fact, that was the point of the law. The, the actual point was that it was too hard. You ever have a teacher that you're pretty sure was out to fail you? Uh, in a way, God actually put the law out there so that we would understand that we couldn't do it. And that's actually the point. That's why he had to send Jesus, because we couldn't do it without him. And now we have a savior. Even when you're at your lowest, when you've made bad decision after bad decision, guess where God's spirit is? He's still with you. He doesn't leave you, all because we're in the new covenant under Christ. We trust him for salvation once, and he never leaves us. In the old covenant, God's spirit would come and go, and we can see that. He would only be on people for a certain time for a certain purpose. Now you have his spirit no matter what. He does not leave you or forsake you ever. He's always with you. So with that in mind, I'm going to start wrapping this one up here. I'm going to close with two questions. Number one, how much thought do you give to your relationship with Jesus? Nobody wants to be in a one-sided relationship. You ever been there? Or the relationship, I'm holding this relationship together. You, maybe you've said that, or maybe you've heard somebody else say that. Think about it. You take Jesus everywhere you go. The question is, do you ever take him places that make him feel uncomfortable? He sacrificed absolutely everything to be with you. And the question is, what are you doing to be with him? We no longer have to keep commandments to be perfect to come to him. He's already forgiven you of your greatest sin. The worst sin that you can ever think of, the worst thing that you have ever done, maybe you haven't even gotten there yet. In all reality, he's already forgiven you. To him, it's already water under the bridge. But what did we say earlier about the priest and the sacrifices? That his sacrifice is useless to us unless we apply it personally. Second question, how do you make difficult decisions? How do you make difficult decisions? They come up, buy a house, in a relationship, job. I mean, there are a ton of different ways that we can make difficult decisions. We're talking about people who have cancer and trying to figure out what's gonna happen, what to do. Science is murky. Do you invite God to be a part of your decisions like Abraham and Melchizedek? I wanna remind you once again that when you're faced with a big decision, Turn on your favorite Christian song. Sing along with it if that's you. Open up your Bible. Read a chapter. Find a quiet place and pray. Whatever it is that you can do to bring yourself into worship, do that before you make your big decision. And you will find that your decision is much easier to make and much clearer. And when you're reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, that he never changes and that he loves you deeply. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, I do thank you so much for the good things that you do in our lives. Father, I thank you for always being there for us, for never giving up. And Lord, I thank you that we can learn about your history so we can know who you are in your character so that we can trust you as we move forward and walk with you daily. Lord, help us to purposely pursue your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, this is Pastor Jake. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to these messages that we put online. I do pray that these are helpful for the times you just can't be with us in person. I want to remind you that this recording is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the Word of God is being preached and proclaimed. We are told by Scripture to gather together so that we each belong to a local body of believers where we are being shaped by being known by using each of our gifts and walking faithfully in God's Word. So thank you again so much for listening and growing with us. I hope you enjoyed today's message.